Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we've been in a series for the last several weeks, walking through just kind of verse by verse, what is this letter about and what does it mean for the church today? Our passage today deals with the role of a godly woman in the local church. Now, I'm aware of the fact that studying this passage today can be a very controversial one. Matter of fact, it is one that churches have gotten arguments over and splits over, and that need not be, but sometimes that's what we do when we have a strong opinion. As a matter of fact, um, I would have liked to skip this passage this week. Some of you even asked me throughout the week. I've had more conversations about the upcoming passage that's taking place today than anything I've preached so far. You're like, you going to preach that one preacher? How are you going to handle that one? What are you going to do with that one? That's a real challenging one. I'm glad you're doing it, not me. I even beg some of you. I, I beg Lane. Lane, I'm going to be out of town. You want to preach it? No, I'm not preaching it. Lane, Lane come on. You, you ready? This morning I walked in and said, Lane, are you ready? He said, nope. This is yours. You're the preacher. Have fun with this passage. It's a challenging passage. We are living in a day where women have said enough's enough. Where ladies have decided to stand up and say, not any longer. And over the last few years, ladies have decided to stand up for things like equal pay and leadership roles, and most recently, standing up for sexual harassment and abuse and say, it's got to stop. I must say, I believe that's a good thing. I believe it's the right thing. And I believe that what has taken place in our culture is not of God. For too long, ladies have been put down and seen as inferior to men, and it's not right. However, what's happening in our culture affects the way we view and interpret Scripture many times. It's called exegeting Scripture, actually taking Scripture and understanding it and breaking it down. We take our life experiences and we bring that in to our interpretation of understanding Scripture. Sometimes the point that we want to ignore or we want to throw out God's Word when it comes to certain topics. I really wanted to ignore, and you could just kind of skip past these like eight, nine verses, and just go, we'll just jump to the next section. But we'd be doing a disservice to God's plan for His church and what God's strategy is. So today, our text, it's a challenging one to deal with. I've wrestled over this text probably more than any text I've wrestled with in a long time. Matter of fact, I had so many butterflies and nerves this morning. I told a couple people, I'm nervous like I'm preaching my first sermon because I understand the culture. I understand what's going on. I, I, I've been watching the news. I know what's happened with the trial. I know, I know all that. And you guys too, you see it. It's on the news and we, and we know what's happening. And so I stand up here today as graciously as, as I can and as gently as I can to try to explain a very complicated passage to you. And I don't stand up and say, I've got it all conquered I probably have more questions still as I've studied and prayed over this than I have answers, but I think I have a decent understanding. There are major denominations who are debating the role of women in the church and whether or not women should be ordained for leadership roles of ministry in the local church. There are a number of churches who have co-pastors with husbands and wives where they're both pastors. A number of major Congregations are now ordaining women and recognize them as pastors with the same authority and same stature as men who serve as pastors. And one of some of the largest churches in America now are ordaining women elders. I'm very committed and have been committed and get more and more committed as I get older 
that we need to let the Scripture speak and be our main source of information. Now, I understand in our culture today, we don't understand truth. In our culture here in America today, what we say is, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. What's good for you is good for you, and you do what you want, and I will do what I want. We have eliminated a basis of truth. But today, we need a basis of truth. We don't need somebody else's magazine article. We don't need a blog post. We don't need to know what other, some other church is doing. And so may I submit to you, church, that the Bible must be our source of belief and truth. I hope that you are here and you understand that and you agree that. That's my prayer because you don't want Brian Bolton's opinion, do you? My wife for service said, Amen. We don't want man's opinion. We don't want woman's opinion. We need God's opinion for this culture. We need God's opinion for what's going to work and what won't work, for what's right and what's not right, for the healthy way to live and the unhealthy way to live. At center point, we believe in the Bible. And if you came to our membership class, I would stand before you or Lane would stand before you as I t- we teach the class and we tell you that we believe in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to be the inspired Word of God and it is without error. It's God's plan. We believe the Scriptures are the final authority for all matters of Christian faith and practice and it's the final authority for our lives and how we're supposed to walk and how we're supposed to live and there is no other authority. And we believe that where the Bible speaks, we should speak. And where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. And you say, where do you get those thoughts from? I don't have time in this message to exegete a whole uh, understanding of why we believe Scripture to be the fully inspired Word of God. But consider just a couple of Scriptures with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I am not giving you my words, I'm giving you the Spirit's words. Paul says, what I'm giving you comes from God Almighty. And then he says to Timothy in his second letter, which I'm not sure if we'll walk right through that one next or not. We may pick it up another time. He says all Scripture. He doesn't say some Scripture. He says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says all Scripture is God-breathed. That means what you see on paper or as you look at your device and you're looking at your app, and you see the Scriptures, what you're reading, even though it's been written by multiple authors, the main author, the one who inspired it all, is God Himself. So what's in the Scripture is what God wanted placed within the Scripture. So important for us to understand that. See, in my understanding of God's Word, I see that when Jesus came, He actually lifted up the role of women in our society. Now, our society has made it all messed up. It's like our society is taking a little bit of teaching in the Bible, a little bit of teaching in the world, a little bit of other kind of teaching, put it all in blender and mess it all up, and it's a bad, nasty drink that we've been served. That's what our society has done. But see, the church has followed the pattern of the Lord and has placed women on a true pedestal where God intends them to be, but we mess it up. Nothing has ever happened in this world that has done more to lift the role of women and to give them the opportunity to reach true fulfillment 
than the coming of our Lord Jesus and establishment of his church because Jesus came to this earth through a woman. And so ladies play a very vital role in God's church. Now, before we dive into the key pa- into the text, let's be reminded of the key passage we've been dealing with, which is 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul says, If I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the foundation of truth. Paul's teaching people how you should conduct yourselves in God's household. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, here's the playbook. Here's the plan. Here's how God wants us to do this thing in his church, how we live this out. Now remember, for us to understand this passage, we must look at it within a, within the context of what Paul is writing about. He's writing to Timothy, and he's specifically speaking about public worship service in the local church, and the main idea he wants to drive home here is the topic of prayer. And he's talking about to be praying people, and primarily about the prayer and the salvation of the world, that we pray for kings, and we pray for rulers, and he says we pray for everyone, that what, that they would know Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would know salvation. Now, if you recall last week, we looked at verse 8, because it was the key verse where he says, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. He's he's challenging the men to make sure that prayer is first and make sure you're leading like this. He tells them, stop your arguing, stop disputing, stop fighting, and start praying and praying for the salvation of mankind. Now, we walked through this a little bit last week, but I want to review it a little bit. In verse 1, verse 4, and verse 5, depending on which translation you're looking at, the word men is used. Sometimes it's used everyone. But when you go to the original language, the Greek word is anthropos, which means men and women. And so verses 1, 4, and 5, it's talking about mankind. But when you get to verse 8, all of a sudden, the, the word changes to aner which stands for male species. It stands for the the masculine man. And so in verse 8, when he says, I want the men, he's not talking about men and women. He's saying, I want men to lift up their holy hands and quit arguing and quit fighting. And so they were dealing with some stuff where the men were sidetracked and they were distracted and they weren't leading out in prayer. They were arguing and fighting about all kinds of stuff that's meaningless and it was distracting to the worship. Now, men are not the only ones to pray, by no means. But Paul set an example that men, you had to step up and lead. You need to lead out in this avenue of worship. So in verse 8, Paul's telling Timothy to challenge the men to step up. I think that's a word we need to hear today, guys. That's a word we need to hear today that, guys, it's our job to step up in this thing of spiritual leadership. He wants men to embrace their roles as a spiritual leader in the home and in God's church. And so as we walk through this passage, and now we start to turn towards the directions he shared, turning things towards ladies, let's not forget, he begins with the guys, and he says, guys, are you going to step up and be men of prayer? Are you going to be holy men? Are you going to be righteous men? And then he says these words in verse 9. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and proprietary, adorning themselves not with the elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, Apostle Paul is saying, I'm going to give you some guidelines 
And women who desire to be godly will follow. In the King James Version, it says women who profess to worship God. In the, King, in the NIV, it says women professing godliness. In the New American Standard, it says women making a claim to godliness. So there are guidelines for women who want to lead a godly life and a godly lifestyle. We first see, he talks about the beauty of a godly woman in these verses. That word adorn actually comes from the word cosmos, which is cosmetic. We've heard of cosmetics because most of you probably got up and used a few cosmetics this morning. What you, what you put on, literally, the word means is how you arrange yourself. Let's have some confession. Who did some arranging this morning? Men, a lot. Men and women, we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we do a little bit of arranging, a little combing the hair, maybe ladies put on a little bit of makeup, uh, brushing your teeth, your arranging of the teaching of Scripture is that godly women are to adorn herself godly, modest apparel. The point is, it's not about braided hair or about gold or about pearls or about expensive clothes. The point is that a godly woman's beauty is not what's dependent on the things on the outside or things that you can buy at a store, a godly woman's beauty starts from internally. Godly woman's beauty. And what was happening in that culture, see, they were dealing with false teaching in that culture. Remember? That was chapter 1. One of those teachings was about our beauty and our beauty of being of great importance. They were dealing with some women who were coming into the worship service dressed in a sexy way like they were going out with their husband or their man or, or they were even hunting for a man. They were looking for somebody. They were presenting themselves in a provocative way as to offer their bodies to the men. Some of the understandings this week said that they were coming in, into the worship service going, I'm kind of shopping for that guy. And I want to make sure I look good so I stand out and I'm appealing to various men. Verse 9 is, is not giving us an excuse, ladies, to be sloppy and put on a sweatpants and t-shirt and say, husband, just deal with it. That's not what it's talking about. Godly women ought to set the standard when it comes to beauty and, and dressing first class. Paul is saying that a godly woman doesn't view church as an opportunity to be a fashion show. Look at me. Look how beautiful I am. Look how gorgeous I am. Look at my clothes. Look at my gold. Look at my sexy outfit. That's not the mentality that a godly woman would carry into gathering in church for worship. Now, some of you may be thinking, doesn't the Lord look at the heart, though, Brian? He's not looking at the way I dress, is he really? I mean, is he really concerned about that? And I would say, yes, he looked at the heart. Matter of fact, 1 Samuel 16, 7 even tells us that the Lord looks at the heart, but people can't see your heart. People don't know your motives. We need to dress in a way that doesn't make people stumble. We need to dress in a way that we don't come attention and draw, our, draw attention to ourselves because we should be pointing attention and being reflectors towards God in everything that we do. And so Paul's addressing the ladies and saying, ladies, is your dress pointing people towards God or is your dress drawing people to yourself? Verse 10, I think it's the most beautiful thing about a godly woman is that God honors not what you wear, but who you are. If you want to honor God, then you honor them and honor God and who you are. He moves on and talks about the behavior of a godly woman. Look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not per permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not to be one Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now sometimes you look at that verse and 
This is one of the verses that can really bother the ladies. This can be hard to understand, except, I mean, we're, we're always to be guided by the teaching of God's word and, and not by current opinion. The standard of a believer doesn't come from what people's opinion are or what the sayings of the day is. The standard of a believer comes from what God's word says and what the scripture says. And the Bible is always to be our ultimate authority. And so it doesn't matter what people are saying in our society our society would say, oh no, you stand up, you speak for yourself, you do this. If it contradicts the teaching of God's word, then it's wrong. It's, it's not the plan of God. And what the Bible says is right. And what God has perfectly good and legitimate reasons in saying what he says to this church here and to Timothy as he's guiding him. He has good reasons why. Paul is writing to this church that's located actually in Ephesus and the temple of Diana was there. They had temple prostitutes and worship that was loud, gaudy, and blatantly immoral as part of the false teaching of the day. The women would conduct their temple rituals and services and then hit the streets to ply their trade as prostitutes, and then they financed their false worship with prostitution. And that was going on in their culture, and that was infiltrating into Christ's church. So these ungodly women were in stark contrast to what Jesus did in the life of a woman when he saved her, and she came to know Christ as Savior, and her heart and her life has changed. And these pagan religions, they were very vocal in what was going on, and so they were going to any kind of worship service or any kind of gathering, and the pagan religions included drunkenness and illicit sex and uncontrolled babbling and gibberish, and they had to make stuff up because they were serving false gods, and they were trying to bring that into God's church. And Paul had caught word of that, so he's telling Timothy, Timothy, what they're doing in this false religion, you can't let that be coming into the church. You can't let that start sneaking in and start filtering in because that's not my plan for the church. And so verse 11 talks about quiet and demean, demeanor and spirit. He's not saying that women can't open their mouths. That's a good time for you ladies to say amen. He's not saying just shut your mouth and be quiet. He's establishing a biblical principle of submission. Now, I asked a few different ladies who tell me, what would you uh, title this sermon after reading verse 11? And they said, just tell, stand up and tell women to shut up. And I said, well, that, that's not going to go over so well. <laughs> that's not what he's trying to say here. But he's talking about authority. He's talking about submission. Submission means to rake, rank under or to be under the authority and the Bible teaches the role and responsibility, or it teaches an order. All of us like order. Do you guys like things done in order? Some of you are not sure. Tell you what, if you go over here and you buy a car off the lot for a Toyota, do you want to make sure it went through the right order at the plant in Georgetown? I know you do. I do. I want to make sure it went through step one, step two, step three, of whatever how many steps there are. Because when I drive that car, I want to make sure it went through the right order so it drives appropriately. If I go down here to McDonald's and I order a hamburger, and I pick the hamburger up and I took it out of the thing and it had the burger first and then the bun and then some lettuce and then some ketchup and mustard and no top bun, would I be upset? You would too because it's out of order. This passage is all about order and how God puts things together in order. Our God is a God of order. And so he's given us instructions on worship and how we grow out of an order that he has put together, but we're the one who puts it in a blender and we mix it all up. For instance, when you talk about order, in the book of Ephesians, he said, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. There's an order here that the man is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The men are supposed to lead out in spiritual matters. That does not mean inequality. 
on any part of the woman. It means we have different roles. It simply means there always has to be some sort of direction and there has to be some kind of leadership in any kind of institution. A bank has a president who's kind of calling the shots and saying, here's where we're going. A city, we have a mayor, and a mayor then says, here's kind of where we want to go. A church has a pastor or pastors. A family has a head, and a head is a husband or the father. And so Paul establishes here a headship and leadership of the man in the church and the home, that that's our job. And now remember, he goes back to verse 8. What do he say? Men, quit arguing, quit disputing. Lead out in what? Holy hands of prayer. Comes back in this passage, and he's setting up the example of leadership. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you look at that passage, you say the head of a, man, a woman is a man. It's a leadership issue. But look at the passage in reverse. God leads Christ, and Christ leads the man, and then the man is to lead the woman. Jesus said many times, I don't do anything on my own accord. I only do what my Father God tells me to do. And so Jesus was in submission to God. He says, I do what he tells me to do. And Christ then leads the man. We as men, we submit to Christ. What does Christ want us to do? And then ladies, then you follow as a man does that in your life. Now, 1 Timothy 2, Paul's talking about that leadership role. He's talking about submission and headship. There's an order of how things are to be done. He talks about role assignment, the assignment that God has given to the man and to the woman in the congregation. I want the men to take leadership responsibilities in the public worship of church. Challenges, guys, we've messed this up. The challenge is, is we've let go of our role. We haven't embraced our role. Verse 12, in contrast, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority or man. He's talking about the God-given role assignment for the man to be the leader in a public worship service. This doesn't mean that women can never teach or never sing or never pray. It doesn't mean that, they're, that they are to usurp the authority of man, literally to kill the authority of man. That's what they're not supposed to happen is, nope, you are no good to me anymore. What was happening in the church in that culture was, we don't care what you say. We'll just take over and do whatever we want to do. We'll say what we want to say. And Paul's trying to reestablish, hold on a minute, I have an order set up here. And if you follow my order, things work out well. In Titus 2, the women are to teach the other women. Older women teaching younger women. And throughout Scripture, we see some different areas where women did lead and where they taught. Now, there were no kings and a king of Israel or Judah. There were no women priests in the entire Old Testament. There were no women who authored Scripture or a portion of Scripture. Now, you do have two books, Ruth and Esther, that were named after women. There were no women in an ongoing prophetic ministry. No women are listed in the minor prophets or the major prophets. Why is that? Because God's establishing an order that men are supposed to be spiritual leaders, but we've messed it up, and so we have a hard time receiving that direction. In the New Testament, there were no women pastors, elders, evangelists, or authors of Scripture. People who advocate women preachers today point to the fact that there were prophetess in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, there were five of them. Miriam in Exodus 15 called a prophetess because she led the women in praise and God gave her a brief revelation to share, but there was no ongoing continuing ministry. Deborah in Judges chapter 4 called a prophetess because God used her to get a message to Barak, but there was no ongoing prophetic ministry. Huldah in 2 Kings 22 and in 2 Chronicles 34 was called a prophetess because 
God gave her a message for Hilkiah, the priest, about the coming judgment in Jerusalem and Judah. But again, there was no ongoing prophetic message. Noadiah in Jeremiah 6 called a false prophetess aligned with Sanballat and Tobiah who tried to stop the rebuilding of the walls. The wife of Isaiah in Isaiah 8 called a prophetess only because she gave birth to a child with a name that carried prophetic meaning. But again, no ongoing ministry. So there are times for sure where God raised up a lady to do the do his work and she did it and she fulfilled that calling but there was no ongoing long-term ministry of being a pastor what about the four daughters of philip in the new testament in acts 21 he had four daughters that prophesied but then no ongoing ministry and spoke one at a time see what happens is god will take and use a lady to step up when the man has stepped aside that's what's happened in our culture today for too long men have stepped aside and men have said well i'm too busy I've got this going. I've got to do my work. Oh, I'm coaching this team. I'm busy with this. And what happens are our ladies will step into the role and they'll start to fulfill the roles and they'll take leadership. And truthful be told, I don't have a group of ladies. I wouldn't group them in because ladies are going to get it done. Ladies get it done, guys. Now, in our black African-American culture churches, as I talk to pastors, they're like, Brian, we don't even have men in our churches. So what happens is the lady are do, ladies are doing just what we see in the Old Testament, and they're stepping in the roles, and they're like, as soon as there's a guy who's ready to lead, who's a godly leader, we're ready to get out of the way. And so they're looking in the black churches for men to step up and lead. See, Mary, the mother of Jesus, spoke prophetically in the presence of Elizabeth, but there's no ongoing ministry. 1 Corinthians 11.5, those who pray or prophesy need to be submissive, though, to their husbands, underneath the authority, underneath the leadership of a godly leader. The covering of the head was a sign of submission. And Acts 2 says, your daughter shall prophesy, simply means to speak forth God. And we have a number of godly women who serve in our ministry here at Centerpoint. You see some up here leading on stage. You see some leading in different groups ministry. We see some who are serving in communion. It doesn't mean they can't serve. Different roles don't imply difference in value. God has given the role of leadership in the home and in the church to the man. And you got to ask the question, why? why? Why, God? Why do you do it this way? Because sometimes, many times in my experience, what I've seen is, is women are, are dynamic leaders and get things done more than a guy. And we go, well, the guy's supposed to be leading. Why, why is he not leading? Why, why? That's the big question. Verse 13 tells us that Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul takes this whole discussion and says, let's go back to creation so that we don't see that this is just a cultural issue. See, Adam was given the responsibility to care for Eve as his wife. And the devil usurped the man's authority. The devil come in there and played a little trick. See, Adam, Scripture says, was not deceived. You see, it says he wasn't deceived. In other words, Adam knew what he was doing. Paul is not saying that a woman brought sin in the world, but that the serpent went through Eve to get to Adam. Adam knew full well what he was doing, and he chose to allow her not to obey God and went with his wife to eat the fruit. And Romans 5 tells us that sin entered the world through one what? Through one man. See, Eve hadn't received the instructions. It was Adam who received the instructions. Don't go to that tree. Don't eat of that. And then when she comes and says, hey, let's go eat this, Adam was supposed to say, now hold on a minute, Eve. 
God has given me some direction here, and I don't think I've communicated that to you yet, but God has told me that we're not supposed to go to that tree and eat of that tree, and here's why we're not supposed to eat of that tree. But he didn't do that. He put his tail between his legs and went, okay, honey, I'll do what you want to do. And he didn't stand up for his family. He didn't stand up for his wife. There was a temptation of sin, and the Scripture says he was not deceived because he knew exactly what was going on. He was deciding to not follow God's plan. See, spiritual leadership, man failed in the garden, and ever since God's plan has been to get the man to stand up and lead in spiritual matters. The devil deliberately went to Eve first, reversing the roles in absolute defiance to God's role assignments for the man and for the woman. He went on purpose, and he knows he went to her because a woman typically will lead with her heart, not all the time, but typically. A man leads with his head, and men, that doesn't mean we're smarter. We just tend to be more factual in how we think, where a woman thinks more with feelings, like a woman's intuition. And so the serpent goes to Eve and says, hey, doesn't this feel good? Doesn't this sound great? Let's do that. And Adam, instead of thinking of his head, just went, okay, I'll just follow wherever she wants to go. Now, we joke sometimes and say, oh, it was all the woman's fault, that whole sin in the garden thing. But you really dive into it, it goes back to men. It goes back to the man who says, I'm not going to lead. I'm not going to be a spiritual leader. I'm not going to lead out and, and protect my family because he reverses that role. And God told Adam, they're not to eat of that tree, knowledge of good and evil. The only way Eve would have known that is if her husband would have told her. She hadn't been created yet. If her husband would have said, Eve, nope, not supposed to go down that road. And the devil comes to her and confuses the issue. If Eve would have gone to her husband and said, honey, what should I do? What do you think? Maybe he would have diverted that. Maybe it would have went a different direction. See, you never go wrong when you follow God's plan. And you look at this passage, and you look at the first eight verses, and he's saying, men, lead out. He comes down to the ladies and say, ladies, here are some things that's kind of getting away. And then when we come back to chapter 3 next week, he comes back again, and he hits the men and says, men, here's what spiritual leadership looks like. See, Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what was going on. And when God came to confront them after their sin, he didn't ask for Eve. Go back to Genesis. So you say, Adam, calls out Adam. Where are you? We're responsible, guys. We're responsible to lead our life, to lead our wives. We're responsible to lead our children. We're responsible to lead in the church, but lead in a way that is a God-loving way that if that Ephesians gets into, that we would lay down our life. They'd be willing to die. And the comparison is that Jesus served us so much that Jesus died on the cross. But we've got things so backwards and so messed up that we receive texts like this and we go, oh, that's really hard to hear. Oh, I'm not sure if I can do that. It's because we don't understand that we are supposed to be leading with a servant leadership that says, I'm willing to die for my family. God always holds a man accountable and responsible. That's heavy for us, men. It's heavy for us, but it's on our shoulders. It's a matter of role assignment. As you look at this text, it's all about God being a God of order. We have an orderly God. He's setting up things in order of how things ought to be. And then he goes off and he finishes with the blessing of a godly woman. Now listen to this verse. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and proprietary. Now, you read that verse just straight out. How many people read that and you go, that sounds weird? 
Am I the only one? Man, I've wrestled really hard on this this week for no reason. You guys have this all figured out. I read that verse that says, but she'll be saved through childbearing. And I'm like, that's, that's a weird one, God. So this week and the previous weeks, I mean, I've been studying this passage. I've been studying ahead probably for a month on this passage while doing the other ones because this is such a, a challenging passage. I've been asking the question, what's this childbearing thing? Because if you read that straight out, she'll be saved through childbearing, then you, can, uh, you could come to some conclusions that go, wait a minute. So if a lady hasn't had a baby, then she's not going to be saved? Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? That doesn't make sense at all. What about the woman who's not able to have children for whatever medical reasons or never been married, never had kids? So you go, man, I'd be eliminating an awful lot of ladies. Or you wrestle with the text where Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So you would say, well, that's a work. If i got to have a child. So all those things make no sense, right? It's just not the conclusion you can come to because Paul's not talking about salvation of the individual here. It's not a reference about going to heaven. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, one of the results of sin was what, lady? Pain and what? Childbirth. Now, a lot of you ladies go, I understand that. Some of you men go, I understand that. No, you don't. We are by their bedside, but we don't understand it. Childbearing. There was pain in childbearing. So he's referring to a blessing that our Savior came through a woman through what? Through childbearing. And so God uses the Virgin Mary to bring a Savior in the world. And so pain came in childbearing because of sin, and sin is done away with through a Savior who was born of a woman. And so this is a great picture of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. Going, look what has happened. Salvation has come through woman as ladies. And then he says, continue. Continue in faith. He says, keep that upward relationship. You continue in faith. You continue keeping your eyes on Christ. You continue looking to God for direction, for Jesus as Savior. He says, in love. Now, that's our outward relationship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, now you keep doing that. You love people. So you're looking up to God and you're loving people. And holiness is talking about an inward relationship where you walk with your Holy Spirit. And this is all about our walk with God. He's like, now you continue that, and you do what God has called you to do, and not only will you be blessed, but you'll also be a blessing to the world. And so he's saying, listen, when you continue in faith, and you continue in love, and you continue in holiness, then you'll impact people that are around you. You'll impact your family. And many people in this room probably say, yeah, I've been impacted by a lady who guided me, my mom, my grandma, sister, an aunt, a close friend. He says, you continue in that. You'll change your workplace. You continue in that. And that's how you change your husband. Ladies, it never works to nag us guys and say, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader in the home. You've got to get yourself together. You need to become a man of prayer. You need to do it. It doesn't do that. You continue in faith and love and holiness. You set the example and pray for your husband then to see that example. He's telling the ladies, you keep growing. You don't stop growing. You'll be a blessing in this world. The Savior came through a woman, and many will come to salvation because of your godliness as a woman. So he says, don't quit. Keep going. And then don't forget, men. This passage is just much a strong passage call for us to be spiritual leaders as it is for the ladies to be godly women. Let's bow our heads in prayer.